the bad start if I don't. <laughs> All right. It works great. Amen. Dear church, good morning. Good morning. Um, it's a great privilege uh, for me to be here uh, with you all worshiping God. Uh, Pastor Troy has become a friend, and for the past months, even more so, uh, because he serves in the temporal session of Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Quincy. And this man was the one that asked me uh, the questions for my ordination. So he has a special place in my heart, and I am honored and blessed uh, to be with you all this morning. So without further ado, I ask you to open the Word of God. Open the Word of God with me to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. We're going to be reading uh, from verses 10 to 13. Um, this is obviously uh, the, the introduction of a very fundamental exhortation in the book of Ephesians given by the apostle as a concluding statement in the letter while at the same time it introduces us to the whole subject of spiritual warfare and the real and biblical nature of the Christian life as it's set forth in Scripture as a battle of sorts. And the armor of God is prescribed as the spiritual resource that God has ordained for our protection in our engagement in the spiritual fight that all Christians find themselves in by virtue of being Christians. So if you can rise for the reading of this text, again, we will just read until verse 13, but I encourage you, um, as homework to read until verse 20 when Paul finishes the whole letter and there's, there's a lot here. So the apostle says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Pray with me and please pray for me. Dear Heavenly Jesus, dear Heavenly Father, uh, we worship your Son, Jesus Christ. He is our only source of security in this battle. He has overcome every single one of our enemies. And on the cross and in his resurrection, he has secured us eternally for himself. And we pray that his name would be exalted, that we would see Christ 
even though we're, we're going to insert ourselves in a text that is so immersed with the description of our enemies, we will see Christ. And I pray that we would be encouraged and edified this morning. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. So if I were to ask you, uh, what do we have in common? In the experience of our lives as Christians, what would be your answer? There's not one single right answer to that question, but I suspect that one of the most unpopular answers and the one that increasingly we tend to avoid is the one given by Paul in this biblical text. Because the Pauline answer forces us to reckon with an although unpalpable, objective and realistic view of what we really find ourselves in right now. And it forces us to define ourselves within a framework that is not comfortable. There's nothing comfortable about the experiential context of the Christian life in this side of heaven. And regardless of your answer, there are many I want us to focus in Paul's answer here and what we all have in common as Christians. I've come to announce in the name of God through the text this morning is that we are in war. So here comes Paul, and, and he says that to be a Christian, to have been sovereignly regenerated from, from darkness into life means that our very existence in this side of heaven, since it collides against the empire of evil and it directly opposes the spread and pervasiveness of lies and it threatens the progress of a demonic agenda by virtue of being in Christ. The common reality for all of us is that we are at war. And Memorial Day is coming, we remember our heroes. Oh, should we also remember our spiritual heroes? The main and actually only one, as we will see this morning, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is going to get a little bit bad before it gets better. So bear with me. Just look at the text. See how in this concluding statement, Paul is making a call for arms. For the urgent attending of spiritual warfare. Soldier, are you ready?
Put on the whole armor of God. Verse 11. That's the main idea of the whole biblical passage. And for emphasis, it is repeated in the imperative with a different verb at the end of the introductory statement in verse 13 that we should take up the whole armor of God. So let's understand the big idea before we dive in the text and dig a little bit deeper. The emphasis is to put on the whole armor of God. So Paul in this command is not selective. So you can say, I'm, I'm good with the belt of truth. Got it. I'm a proclaimer and evangelist, and I know what is right and wrong. I know doctrine, and that's, that's me. But don't talk about the shoes for your feet and having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, which refers to our foundation to fight evil and the responsibility to spread the gospel. Um, yeah, sure, um, I'm good with the breastplate of righteousness. Been working on this issue and, you know, this thing of justification, me and the Holy Spirit in cooperation and plus... I've received the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. But don't, don't mention the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one or even maybe for some, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I'm not very good at that. No. Paul is not selective. Paul is not flexible. And it's not because he's harsh, it's because he's loving. And he understands exactly where we are, although we forget about it. Right at the end, he says, finally, look, since chapter 4, I've given you three whole chapters of, of unfathomable doctrine. And in chapter 4, I talked to you about walking the walk, right? I started a section about the practical living of the Christian life. I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Chapter 4, verse 1, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Chapter 4, verse 17, Walk in love, chapter 5, verse 2. Walk as children of light, chapter 5, verse 8. Look then carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil, chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. And after demonstrating that the Christian life is enabled by a power that is outside of us. Because in chapter 5, verse 18, Paul warns us that we should be filled by the Spirit. And then he applies this overarching exhortation of walking the walk to one's calling. Uh, to the two most common places we find ourselves in every day. Walk the walk, says Paul, in the home. Husbands, wives, children. And then where else are you when you're not at home? Tell me. Work, right? Well, not, you know, all of you, but work. So servants, masters, and then Paul says, finally. I have one more exhortation, just one, to give you the idea 
that should dominate your thought and to demonstrate very clearly that the walk to which I'm calling you to walk in the spirit-filled life in which I'm calling you to live simply will not go without strenuous, determined, aggressive, resolute, intentionally destructive, supernatural, demonic opposition. So you can't walk the walk. You can't be filled with the Spirit and ignore that almost everything around you will try to keep you from that. The Christian life is a war engaging enterprise. We are soldiers. Now, before we demonstrate how our endurance and power to be victorious uh, derives not from ourselves, although it's going to sound like it at times when I preach, it may sound like it because this is, this is the tone of the text, but I will not finish this sermon without coming back to the foundational reformed idea that our victory is in Christ. And I want to show you how what Paul states in verse 10 should really govern how we approach the fight described from verses 11 to 13. Now, since we've established that the main idea here is to put on the whole armor of God, I want to ask you two questions. Two. Two. First, specifically, why is Paul commanding us to put on the whole armor of God? Why? So we're inquiring into the purpose and what justifies not only the existence of the armor, but our relationship to it. But we can't stop there. We can't stop by knowing why we should be prepared for war. That's not the gospel. That's the Pharisees all the way. If we don't ask the second question, which is, based on what are we guaranteed victory in the battlefield? Based on what are we guaranteed victory in the battlefield? So, so first, why is Paul commanding us to put on the whole armor of God? There are three reasons in this passage that I want to give you. First, because of the astute nature of the arch enemy, verse 11. Second, because of the supernatural nature of the war, verse 12. And thirdly, because of the potentially destructive nature of the evil day, verse 13. So, first, because of the astute nature of the arch enemy, verse 11. Hmm. He says, put on the whole armor of God so that, or that, or in order to, or for the purpose of, Why should I put on the whole armor of God? And the answer is that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word, the word schemes here is methodias, from which we get the word method in English. 
And it's derived from a verb that means to follow closely, to study deeply, to pursue by devious means, to capture, to trick, to seduce. Says a dictionary that the Septuagint translates to spy. First Samuel 19.38. Do you get it? <laughs> we understand. Why put on the whole armor of God? Hey, simply put, let me just say it, is because the devil's not stupid. Our enemy is not slow of mind. Our enemy's strategic, smart, sharp, and dangerous. Paul is describing the devil, the accuser, as one who, after observing and studying our weakness, our moral deficiencies, our spiritual frailties, vulnerabilities, and blind spots, he comes at us as a hunter for his prey. Young people here, it's so good to see so many young people. Look, the devil has been dealing with young people for a long time, and he knows exactly what will trap you in this time that you're living right now in a way that you will find yourself in chains for a very long time. That's his goal. That is his goal. He's sneaky. The devil knows what he's doing. He has developed over... I don't know how many, you know, the the age of the earth is a controversial, um, right? But I'll say me, over six, seven thousand years, the devil has developed professionalized traps for humans. You can say he is, uh, well... Unmatchable doctor in anthropology. He, his schemes are based on specialized knowledge and thousands of years of experience that has only been perfected since the fall in Genesis 3. He's the deceiver of the whole world. Revelation 12, 9. Now, I don't know how long we've mastered the method of catching mice, right? Traps. How long it, you know, I actually was tempted when I was studying for this passage to do like a research of the history of mouse traps. Like, how did it, you know, but I said, I'm going to get too much out of the text, so I might just stick with the Bible here and and quench my curiosity. But we know a lot, don't we, right? And and I call inspection there in Quincy when I got there. These guys came with like tunnels and and like and like sticky stuff and and there's traps and and we know the kinds of cheese that attract we're not gonna put like celery, not even I would go for celery. I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we know how to catch them. And we've done it for so long. And we do it every time. And they keep on falling again and again and again and again and again. Does this sound familiar? Does it? Let me repeat. We, they keep on falling again and again and again and again. On the same traps. Does this sound familiar?
But if Christians know this, right? So why do we still fall? Why are we still caught in the traps and the schemes of the devil? The answer will always be, always, no armor is the answer. Why moral impurity in the church, no armor is the answer. Why imprudent behavior amongst Christians, no armor is the answer. Why so much anxiety and fear in our hearts, no armor is the answer. Why so many marriages and families crumbling, no armor is the answer. Paul already warned us in chapter 4, 27, to give no opportunity to the devil. The armor is the answer. Diabolos is his name, the slanderer, the accuser, the tempter. Christian, he had the audacity of attempting one of his jabs at our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Not to mention the, the persuasive power to convince one-third of all the angels in the immediate presence of God to rebel against him before the fall. Christian, beware! If you came for Christ, you will come against us. He intends to sift us like wheat. But that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And again, I said it's going to get bad before it gets better. Hold a little bit more because there's more to this. Yes, the providence of God is the judge and ultimate architect of history. Yes, his almighty, almighty power limits the actions of Satan. Let me say that again. His almighty power determines and limits the actions of Satan, who is himself a dog in a leash. But here's what's interesting. Christ knew all of that, and in the Lord's Prayer, he commanded us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He is indeed, as stated by John, the prince of the world, liar and murderer since the beginning, according to Peter, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, who's with me uh, that we should be innocent as doves and wise as serpents? And I see hands. Who's with me? Amen. So, so here's a strategy coming from Christ. Just, just for us to you know, get ahead in the battle, um, if your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out. Throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. That's a tough message. So what is this self-mutilating advice? No! Christ knows what is in man, John 2, 25. That the heart is deceitful above all things 
Jeremiah 17, 9. That all the evil things comes from within. And that is what defiles the person. Mark 7, 23. So what's the point? Cut yourself loose from what weakens you in the battlefield. Cut it out. Rip it. Be radical for Christ. Don't be afraid of that because he was radical for you. Watch and pray. This from the one who is our protector, right? This said Christ hours from the cross when he was going to bury these enemies forever in hell. Yet he says, watch and pray. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. See? See the balance? Sovereignty of God and our responsibility, do you, do you see? Why? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now notice the tone of the passage here. Let, go back. Focus now, let's focus now back. Ephesians 6 the military strategy prescribed by Paul. If you read it carefully, I mean, I've, I've studied the whole passage. We're just doing from 10 to 13, barely. But if you, if you read the passage carefully, the strategy here seems to be more defensive than offensive. And I'll, I'll tell you why maybe in a bit. But look at what we're called to do. Look at, well, look at what we're called to do. Stand against, stand against the schemes of the devil, verse 11. Withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, verse 13. Therefore, verse 14, before he talks about, and he's going to expand about the components of the armor. Before he does that, he says, therefore, stand. 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 How do I stand, Paul? How do I stand uh, very quickly? The answer is in verse 18. Praying at all times in the, with all prayer and supplication. Soldier, how's your prayer life? You see, one of the hardest things in the Christian life is to pray. Starting by the fact that nobody will ever know about your prayer life. Except you tell it, you know, and, and that, that's not, you're not going to do that, right? I mean, oh, yesterday I prayed through the night. Well, your prayers weren't even heard because you're boasting about your prayer. That's not the point. But if I study the Bible, maybe some people will notice, right? I study for this prayer, you're all like, well, uh, well he, he knows some things, at least it was good, or, or not so good, but he tried his best and maybe spent a lot of time there in the text. If you go on a missionary trip, everybody knows. Whew, short term, long term, forever, or, you know, everybody in the church, come up here. We did it last week. One of, uh, we have... Um, one of our young uh, people are going to Georgia for the summer to help some uh, families there, and, and we pray for her. We, we started a missions ministry in CTK Quincy that's helping one of uh, the Presbyterian missionaries in um, Sen Senegal. Is that how you say it in English? Senegal and also in Brazil. Everybody knows, but nobody knows. No, nobody's going to know when you shut your door and talk to your Father in heaven. Yet the scripture says that the Lord God will reward you. So how's your prayer life, soldier? So there's two more reasons here. Two more. Why we should put on the whole armor of God. I'm going to go very quickly through verse 12 because it essentially covers what I said already. I mean, it's talking about the devil, then about his minions. So you can just transfer a lot, point one to point two. But Paul says we should put on the whole armor of God 
because of the astute nature of our arch enemy, then because of the supernatural nature of the battle. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You see, the battle supernatural, spiritual, extra physical. That is why we need a spiritual armor. Because our physical and material tools will not do. It's just not compatible with the nature of our enemies. We grant that there is a battle with self. The Bible calls it, you know, the flesh. But that's not, it's not what Paul is talking about here. Not here. And we also grant that demons and evil spirits might well use, use flesh and blood to achieve their purposes. But soldier, keep focused. Your battle is not against flesh and blood. The apostle is affirming that there are evil spirits and the devil himself behind the manipulation of the world as a system. Do you see it? Do you see it all the time? All the time. Everywhere. The influence of powerful structures and rulers who press on his agenda and even the possession of some who have become his evil puppets. No, we're Presbyterians. We don't believe in that. Well, I do. The New Testament bears testimony of the demonic power which manifested itself most aggressively when they got most opposition. When was that? The earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, they trembled. They feared. The Lord would tell them to shut up at times. Come on, just be quiet. I'm going to send you to the abyss. Be quiet. No, please. All right, go to the pigs. And we still have our bacons, don't we? Huh. Their seeds are all over the place, and it's sneaky. Possibly unperceptible, imperceptible for some, but the devil has a plan, and his minions are mercilessly putting it into practice. Um, I don't know if you, if you have like an official day off, like a day off, right? Weekly, planned on schedule. I don't. <laughs> I don't have, I, every day is a, is a different day. Every week is a different week. My wife is here. I was like, my day off is Friday. She's like, nah. We have this. <laughs> so what about Saturday? Mm, you, you get from 8 to 12. But I want to hold, you don't have a hold. Well, you know, we talk about it. But this day, I got a day off on a Saturday, man. And I was so excited. I was like, I'm not going to study. I might pray a little bit, right, just to, but, but I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm going to just free myself from everything that all, you know, just have a moment. And, and, and I forgot, you know, that I have Lydia. And she was like, daddy, 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 daddy. And uh, started to get tired, right? Because she likes to play hide and go seek in like a, a one-room apartment. And she tells me where she's going to hide. It's so cool. I'm going to hide right here. Go. Um, we... We play something, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's something we play in Brazil. We call it pique alto. You guys, hey, you guys, a lot of kids here, you might want to try. Not here, though. Um, um, it, it, the game is like this. Whenever you climb something, people can tag you. 
So she goes around the house, climbing on the sofa. You can't tag me now. And, right, and then when she runs to the chair, have to try to tag her. So I was so tired, and I said, what can I play? It was just like sitting down. <laughs> and that she would be entertained. I was like a simplified version of Uno. Yes, that's it. So I got the Uno, you know, cards, and I said, hey, this is the game. If it's green, you throw green, all right? Cool, daddy. But if you don't have green and you have the same number, you throw the number. All right, cool. So I got it. That, that's the, the only rule that we had. Got all the other cards, two plus, and, you know. And, well, we had the wild card. She goes crazy with the wild I got a wild card. And I said, the other rule is when you have one card, you, you say uno, right? And, and do a little dance and party, uno. So we did that. And uh, brothers and sisters, no joke, she won the first game. <laughs> like, really, no manipulation on my part. But I won the second game. But when I won the second game, I looked at her face. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't enjoy my, my victory. She was sad. She was all like, okay, let's do this one more time. I said, oh, boy, she better win the, th the next game, right? So in the process, I realized I was going to win again. So I manipulated the game in a way that she got the victory. Why? Because I, I pitied her. I, not pitied, not the word. I felt bad for her, for losing. I wanted her to win. Had that sentiment. We're not dealing with this kind of opposition here. Mm -mm. Four categories here are stated in the positive. Four. It is against the rulers, against the authorities or powers, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, or those who exercise some God-permitted control, worldwide influence, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Their entire existence is justified by the perversion of good and the disruption of peace and the spread of death. These guys don't see losing and go, oh, poor him. Let him win at least once. No, no. Their goal is to trample you underfoot till there is no hope. To disintegrate your soul and leave you destitute. To crush your relationship with God until you're strengthless and crumble into pieces. Therefore, the Apostle Paul says, take up the whole armor of God. The third reason, very quickly, is that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and haven't done all to stand firm. Because of the potentially destructive nature of the evil day. You know, according to Christ, he has said in Matthew 6, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The apostle does affirm in chapter 5, verse 16, that the days are evil. Are evil. Which simply means that, in a certain sense, no day escapes the sprinkling of some evil. An administrable measure of malevolent temptations or a considerable portion of destructive attempts against our lives. No day escapes that, but... We've all come to experience the evil day with a definite article. Right? Have you experienced the Job day? When the chariots of hell come down at us at full force. When the schemes of the devil are even harder to resist. 
when fears and doubts challenge your most fundamental and unshakable foundations, it seems, when sudden sufferings interrupt the natural course of our lives, bringing tremendous loss and pain, and God allows the devil and his angels to have it at us as never before, as he did to Job, yet those who have put on the whole armor of God in the middle of this strenuous war rise victorious to say, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So this drives us to the, leads us to the next question. Based on what are we guaranteed victory over our enemies? You know, I saved the best for last. But actually, the apostle begins this section by giving the answer. Did you get it? Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. and in the power of his might. Whoa. So be strong in the passive imperative as if I were to be strong based on a strength that is not active in myself. I'm commanded to be strong because I am made strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Pointed out by the great Puritan William Grunnell, God knows we are but leaking vessels. When fullest, we could not hold our faith for long. And therefore, to make all sure, he sets us under the streaming forth of his strength. Thus, we have our leakage supplied continuously. <laughs> so, so victory doesn't depend ultimately upon us. Yes! That's good news. In chapter 1, Paul establishes the absolute supremacy of Christ against the enemies described by him in chapter 6 and prays that our hearts would be enlightened to understand what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come, and put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. It's so glorious to say this looking at this cross. Church, you who find your strength in the Lord, the victory is yours. By virtue of Christ's work, his death, glorious resurrection for our justification, continual intercession towards our glorification and our unchangeable status of being sons of God in Christ, and coheres with him of all things, the victory is yours. If you are being made strong by the Lord in the Lord, and in the power of his might, the victory is yours. So I have to ask you, do you have the victory? Are you in Christ? You see... If, 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 you, if you haven't repented of your sins and if you haven't come humbly to the Lord Jesus Christ 
and confessed him as your Lord and Savior, lovingly, I want to say, you're in in danger. But he is such a merciful and sweet Savior that all these enemies that attack you today are overcome the moment you believe. You are transferred from darkness into light and they cannot touch you anymore. So what do we all have in common? From the perspective of our experience in the Christian life, as I told you in the beginning, we are in war. But that's not all that's common to us as Christians. We are in war against an enemy that has been already overcome. And the victory is ours by the strength of God and the power of his might. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I I please, I ask you, bring glory to your Son. Just let the church praise Christ for his magnificent work on our behalf. Lord, Oh, if it weren't for you, Lord. I actually want to read, Lord, something that was read here in in the service today. And I want to pray this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 27, here. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen. God bless you.